Indeed, this is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And Buzz Eisenberg has a small <laughs> catch in his throat. The show will perhaps uh, improve from here. I sure hope so. <laughs> we have with us uh, back in our studio Jim Hicks, who is the executive director, executive editor, excuse me, of the Massachusetts Review. He is a professor of comp lit at UMass. And I'm so pleased that uh, Jim Hicks can be back with us today because the Massachusetts Review, of which he is the executive editor, has just published its summer 2023 edition, which is spectacular. Now, there is an adage, which I was looking up, an aphorism, a maxim, that you can't tell a book by its cover. And depending on where you happen to go on the uh, internet to check on this, you can go back in the 1940s or the 1860s by George Eliot, or you can go back hundreds of years as well. You can't tell a book by its cover. But the Massachusetts Reviews, Reviews edition, this, this summer edition, has a spectacular cover that, in fact, tells you quite a bit about what is inside this book. Jim Hicks, tell us a bit, if you would, please, about the Massachusetts Review, and in particular, I want to know about this cover and what's inside the summer 2023 edition. Great. Uh, Well, thanks, Bill, and thanks for the invite, and good to be back with you and Buzz. Um, So this cover is pretty spectacular. Um, I showed it to the venerable and renowned first chair of the FOM department at UMass Amherst, Mike Thelwell, he looked at it and said, Jimmy Baldwell was afraid of everything. He would never have stood on that. What is he doing there? <laughs> but this is a picture of James Baldwin standing on the windowsill several floors up in some building in Istanbul. And it's part of a, a wonderful exhibition that's still at the Mead Art Museum at, at uh, Amherst College for a few more weeks. So if you hustle over there, you can see these, uh, this art in person. But, uh, but you can also pick up a copy of our magazine and see the art insert designed by Pam Glavin, where we're featuring some of the, some of the work in that exhibition. The photograph is just com- so compelling because on one hand, you see Baldwin with kind of a smile on his face, uh, looking down, not out towards the precipice, but towards what I guess is a porch or a portico, uh, well, I guess a porch or of some sort, but it looks like he's trying to keep his balance. Yeah, yeah. So we're, that he we're d- happy that he's sort of leaning in in the safe in the safer direction, right? Right, right. Don't don't throw the book at him. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. Uh, but it really does speak of, it's a beautiful photograph. It's a blue sky. It's a fabulous day. Baldwin looks happy. And yet there's this sense of danger, one wrong step, and there's disaster. I mean, it, it's a remark, remarkable uh, convergence of, of emotions and, and sentiments. I also just want to point out that looking at this photograph, there's a shadowing of Baldwin Against the wall, which I think is, it just, it's all about light. It's really a wonderful yeah. photograph. Yeah. Want to, want to tell us more, a bit more, if you would, please, uh, Jim Hicks? Yeah, well, the, uh, the exhibition was curated by Hilton Alls, the, the great uh, staff writer at The New Yorker. And it's, it's called, uh, what is it? God Made This Face. God Made My Face. Yeah, God Made My Face. And, uh, and we, uh, 
we of course have a connection with Baldwin here in the Valley. Um, he taught at UMass Amherst. And uh, so in, in part we're celebrating that, but, but also we thought this is a perfect, perfect way to, to uh, signal what's in our summer issue, which is a kind of celebration of place. We, uh, we figure, you know, it's summertime and uh, a lot of people are thinking about traveling and uh, we wanted to make it possible for you to travel through our pages. Well, that's quite the literary illusion. I illusion. I I appreciate it. So, tell us a bit more, if you would, please. I mean, two questions. One's the bigger one. One's the uh, particular question about this summer twenty twenty three just published edition of the Massachusetts Re Review. What do you try to collect in the Massachusetts Review, published four times a year? Again, the summer edition just published. You you have a poetry and translation editor. You have an art director. You have a fiction editor. You have trans, a translation editor. Um, I'd like to know more about what you try to create in the Massachusetts Review and why, and then how that comes to fruition in this particular edition. Right. Well, we tend to publish at least one special issue a year, um, but then that leaves three others that are um, kind of standard issues, right? That, uh, that have combined solicited work with uh, work that comes over the transom. Um, one of the things that's always fascinating for me is to, when I get the assembled collection of work that's going to be in this issue, which you know is poetry, um, prose, nonfiction, fiction, there's always a common theme that emerges from it. I mean, we're, as our subtitle says, we're a uh, journal of literature, the arts, and public affairs. So one of the things we're always looking for is work that responds to the current moment. And uh, this issue, like every issue that we put out, responds to what's happening in the world today. I mean, one of the things, one of the pieces that I could signal our readers uh, to is uh, by the former head of the American Literary Translators Association, Russell Scott Valentino. He's got a, a lovely essay that's titled simply, Loving Russia. Really? <laughs> Can you give us a bit of a preview of what it's about? Well, let me just read a little bit from okay, it. Okay, sure, please. Here's how he begins. They've been calling us bad names in the Russian press those of us who support Ukraine against the Russian invasion. I read that Dmitry Medvedev, the former president and prime minister whose vocabulary, if not his ideas, seemed to have shrunk with age, had labeled us degenerates and bastards, all for our supposed anti-Russian sentiments. A comment from the summer of 2022 in the Corriere de la Sera suggested to Mr. Medvedev Medvedev, <laughs> that if he wanted to find anti-Russian sentiments, he should look no further than the great Russian authors of the 19th and 20th centuries. This is, of course, not quite true. While it is possible to find plenty of anti-government ideas in Russian literary works, some of them quite trenchant, even when they are hidden, the authors who produced them were basically all staunch patriots. They loved Russia, which was the basis of their opposition. They looked at their country and saw ineptitude, if not evil, in its rulers. 
This pained them deeply, and so they wrote, and their fellow patriots composed, painted, sculpted, sang, choreographed, and danced. I love what they created, but it's not that simple. And he goes on from there, right? Wow. Interrogating <laughs> both, both his training and you know, the, the knowledge that came from it. Did you solicit this piece? Did it just show up? How, how, how do you get something like this? Well, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of times it comes through our network in a sense. I mean, the American Literary Translators Association, I'm a member. Um, I started going a few years back when they invited me to be on a panel of editors who were interested in publishing translation, and it's one of the m main things we've really tried to increase over the last 10 years or so. Um, and I just kept going back every year. And I met Russell there. We talked about uh, our common interest in East European literature. And uh, we published a translation by him. And uh, so I think that's why he thought of us uh, when he, he wrote this piece. So Jim Hicks, executive editor of the Massachusetts Review, you just said that an edition, one of the quarterly editions, it seems to come together with a theme as if it's organic. And here you have at this time where Russia in particular is uh, on everyone's mind and in every discussion about the world and geopolitics. Did, did this just literally happen? It's organic or you're looking for pieces that fit that theme? Could, uh, I mean, it's not magical. Well, it is magical, but leaving the magic aside for a moment, how does it come, come together like that? Well, and it's a complex question, and I think there's yeah, and it wasn't, and it wasn't all that articulate, but you'll, <laughs> yeah, you'll handle it, no, right? But there's lots of ways to answer it too. I mean, the simplest thing for me is that, you know, there's a romantic tradition um, that would have it that writers sit in their garrets or grottos and compose works of genius plucked out of their skulls, like Minerva from the head of Zeus. I've never believed it. I think history writes literature. So when we get work, it comes to us in a certain moment. It comes to us rather than someone else because they understand what we're interested in doing and they see themselves as part of our project. So it just makes sense that when you look at what comes at a certain moment, there will be common themes. Um, writers are part of a collective that's responding to the world that's around them. I believe you used the phrase just a few moments ago, a piece comes across the transom. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, lovely. Uh, it's, but mu it's much better than the other way that that, that work is often referred to. It's called the slush pile. Well, yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask you. Uh, the, the Valley is filled with writers. Um, the Massachusetts Review... Uh, publishes quarterly. It's one of the most distinguished uh, publications in the Valley for sure. And of course, is very well known across the country in literary circles. Do you accept unsolicited pieces? And if they show up, do they actually end up on the slush pile? And well, without a lot of consideration, uh, what do you do with those? Well, and everything that comes to us gets read um, and uh, forwarded and before it gets into the pages is generally read by at least three or four editors. Um, 
And if we get excited about it, then we decide it's going to be part of the publication. And, and the short answer is absolutely. We get work from writers we've never met, we've never heard of, and sometimes we just get blown away by what they send us. There's a great example in this issue, if, uh, if I can yeah, point please. to another one. Um, this is a, a writer who, so far I haven't met her, but uh, she's, uh, she's in Vermont, so you know, our paths probably could cross in the actual world one of these days. But Oz Johnson sent us this essay called simply An Introduction to Exile, and it's about her conversion to Judaism. But it's about a lot more than that as well. Um, this one starts, When I was in eighth grade, I developed a nightly ritual. I would kneel at the bottom rung of my bunk bed, squeeze my eyes shut, and try to picture the universe in its entirety. A black, glittering void expanding outward and outward and outward. This was God. God. I would pray, help me fix this world even if it kills me. The rabbi overseeing my conversion thinks this story is proof that I was always Jewish, that my spirit simply got genetically lost somewhere on the journey from Mount Sinai to San Francisco. But I'm unconvinced. My spirit does not reveal its sources. Who's the author and what's the title? Oz Johnson. It's called An Introduction to Exile takes five pages before she tells us that she's Filipino-American. Wow. We are speaking with Jim Hicks. He is the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. When we come back, I want to ask, how does a piece come to be in the slush pile or rescued from the slush pile? I also would really like to know whether there's a bit of paranoia in reading pieces by unknown authors and whether you ever have the experience, did I just reject a piece by the next James Baldwin. (laughs) We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. 
The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Let's recap how many ways Franklin First Federal Credit Union makes life simpler for you. Checking accounts? It's totally free. Plus, we have teen and senior checking options. Savings? Think traditional. Plus, HSAs, money markets, club accounts, and CDs. Convenience? How about direct deposit? Real-time payment? Overdraft protection? Free online banking and mobile deposits. Life simplified. Visit franklinfirst.org and learn more. franklinfirst.org, Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Jim Hicks, who is the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. Massachusetts Review's summer edition has just been published, the Massachusetts Review, a quarterly of literature, the arts, and public affairs. We were talking during the break, Jim, you and me and Buzz. We were talking, wait a second, you and Buzz and I were talking during the break, um, and one we'll catch that in the edit. Thank you very much. I pre- I appreciate I appreciate that. Um, I, I we were talking about how you put together the edition, the book, and it and it is a book. Uh, these, these quarterlies, how you manage to make the theme come together and work, and how you sequence pieces. And Buzz had asked that question, and perhaps you could share the answer with our listeners, please. Okay, I will, but I also want to answer the, the one that you asked just before the break, because um, one of the great things about um, being the editor of a fantastic magazine that's been around over six decades is uh, we have a real track record. So I can tell you that we have, in fact, rejected work from some of the greatest authors on the planet um, we have a, in the archive, um, and this was part of an exhibition of, of uh, notes and things from our archive, a note from Langston Hughes that says something along the lines of, I'm not a sensitive poet. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry. You can be tough with me. You can reject my work, Langston Hughes. Yeah, there's, there's also a re- rejection slip for David Foster Wallace. I mean, he might have been a student at Amherst College at the time. I don't know exactly when, when the submission came in. So, uh, so it does, it does happen. Um, we need to find work that, 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 uh, that hits us in this moment and everybody's going to make mistakes. So, you know, the writers know that too, and they just keep working and they keep sending their work out and eventually like the game of pachinko, maybe it just falls in the right spot. And most writers have received any number of Rejections. I think most writers wallpaper their bathrooms with with, with, with the rejections. Uh, one of the nicest rejections I ever received. This one was in college, and I had sent a piece to City Lights, mm. uh, which uh, Lawrence Furlan Getty's uh, uh, sure. publisher publishing house. And uh, a postcard came back. It said something like, "Sorry, we can't accept your piece, um, but don't feel bad. It's not your fault. Our editor, Lawrence Furlan Getty, took off." <laughs> so I, I did appreciate that. I, I, I would like to know about the two pieces in the uh, uh, 
summer edition of Massachusetts Review by Rich Michelson. Right. Uh, two poems, one titled Open Carry and the other entitled... Just white, white Privilege. White Privilege. Right. Did you solicit poems from Rich or did he submit them to you well, un- unsolicited? How did that work? Um, it wasn't directly solicited, but, uh, but of course we know Rich and, uh, and uh, we've published him before. So I think we're one of the magazines, I hope we're one of the magazines he thinks about when he's sending his work out. Um, but this also gets back to the Buzz's question about, uh, about how do you put these things together and, uh, and, and how do you decide what goes where? I mean, it's, it's complicated, and it's, it's one of the things I really like to do. I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting puzzle. Um, there are spots in the magazine that have, I don't know, more prestige or at least more likely to be noticed. Um, so we do sort of think about taking the work that we're most excited about and making sure that it gets noticed by putting it early. Um, Rich's poems, um, one of them comes directly before the art insert and the other comes directly after. Now that's a hot spot too, right? That's, you know, if you just flip through, you're likely to find the art insert, therefore you're likely to find one of Rich's poems. But is the content of a piece uh, intended to segue into the next Absolutely, piece? yeah. One of you know, the other thing besides having some vague idea about how much um, we want to emphasize a particular work, um, what I try to do is is make something like a mixtape that uh, one piece should resonate with with the piece that follows it. Sometimes there's even clusters of pieces um, that are related in in one way or another. Um, and that's the th- kind of thing we're thinking about when we put together the table of contents as well. I, I did notice uh, after the, the poem, I too took pictures of my body. The first word in the poem itself is naked. And the piece that follows is titled Peripheral Sex. Um, it's a translation. Mm-hmm. Tell us, if you would, any other comments about how you sequence things. I'm really interested how you sequence the pieces yeah. in, in, in the magazine. <clears throat> in the, in the, I think it's a, think of it as a book. Um, we do, too. <laughs> would, would you tell us a bit more about translations and who picks them and how you decide which pieces go into the Massachusetts Review that are translations? Mm-hmm. Because there's an entire world out there. Right. It's not in English. Yeah. No, in fact, I mean, one of the things that, uh, that we did um, decide to do when I came on, now it's over a dozen years ago, as, as editor, was to try and publish as much as we could in translation and just internationalize in any way we could manage it. It was my idea, and I, I still believe this firmly, that one of the things that happens when you publish work by the greatest writers you've never heard of because you haven't had a chance to read them because you don't know their language is your language and your conception of literature gets changed. So it's a way to get back some of the, the, the great energy that this magazine's always been known for. Uh, Jim Hicks, I, uh, um, I really wonder whether or not you, you're an expert, I'm not. Can you, are people's voices articulable? That is, do you really sense that this piece has a voice 
and compare it to the voice of the piece that comes before it or the piece that comes after it? Absolutely. I mean, in some sense, it's content, it's voice, it's style, it's theme, all of those in one way or another. When I talk about one piece resonating with the next one, I mean, Bill's example was great because obviously um, a poem that begins with the word naked followed by an, a story that is titled Peripheral Sex, um, the connection's pretty obvious there. Even I got it. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it's, didn't, didn't we used to all have those posters that we put up in high school say, sex, now that I have your attention, <laughs> vote, vote for me for student council. Right? Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, resonance can be found in, in you know, all sorts of different ways between one piece and the next. One of the things I should mention about the peripheral sex story is that the translator is actually one of the best known and most important theorists of translation. Larry Venuti, who teaches at Temple, um, he wrote this amazing book on the invisibility of the translator and arguing against that, um, that traditional concept that, you know, there's still even um, some very well-known presses that publish either only translation or a lot of translation and, and don't put the translator's name on the cover. So Jim Hicks, uh, executive editor of the Massachusetts Review, I want to ask you about one aspect of the summer edition. Again, it's now, now published, just been published. It has poetry and stories and nonfiction and hybrid work and artwork. It also has a novel excerpts, a novel excerpt, one in this edition. And I'm wondering whether that is particularly difficult to decide to publish to take just a piece of a novel, is that does that present certain problems in either editing or in uh, translation that is unique to doing something like that? A poem stands on its own. A story stands on its own. An excerpt, different. Yeah, yeah. No, it certainly can. And uh, sometimes, you know, when we're at at uh, you know literary festival or something, uh, writers will come up to the table and ask us because. Some magazines don't like to do it. They don't like novel excerpts for the very reasons you're saying. But what we're looking for is um, something that reads like a story, that in some sense does feel self-contained. I mean, the great Russian formalist Vic Victor Shklovsky said that all novels are basically collections of short stories with arbitrary connections. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he's right about and that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds more like a but, con connected stories than an actual novel, which yeah, has its but some own of art. But some of them really do work that way, and, uh, and others really don't. I mean, it's, uh, sometimes it's hard to find a piece within a novel that will work on its own. And you'd love to publish that writer, you'd love the novel, but you know, it's not really going to work as a standalone piece in a magazine. Jim Hicks, tell us, please, how do we find a copy of the Massachusetts Review? Where do we order it? And I think also, how does one subscribe? Well, certainly the local bookstores uh, all c carry our magazine, but uh, the easiest way is just to go to our website, www.massreview.org, and, uh, and you can order the, a copy of the current issue. You can certainly subscribe, and we'd love it if you do. If you do that, you get the current issue for free. So, uh, so there's an added incentive. And, 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 and I do thumb through it at the broadside, I do, and uh, I think it's really... Uh, really an important co community endeavor that 
the Massachusetts Review is available at our local independent bookstores, which I really appreciate. Okay, you're the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. I don't want to put you on the spot, except I do. <laughs> give, give us a word of wisdom for summer reading. Well, the um, let me just, because, you know, there's sort of all my children in a way, point to one last piece in, in this issue, just because it's, it's one of the things that I'm proudest uh, that we published, and I think everybody should know about it. It's, uh, it's also one of the shortest. It's a, a, um, a ten-line poem called Like Russian Dolls by Patricia Previtt. She told us, my granddaughter, she told her mom and me, her granny, that we're born with all the eggs we'll ever have. So she was in me when her mom was in me. Delighted, we laughed while holding each other's gaze. We connected women who create each other, forever connected to the women who came before and all the women after forever. So Patty Privet um, is... I think serving her 36th year of a life sentence for a crime she didn't commit. Wow. Wow. So we're talking about travel in a summer issue. Some people don't have that privilege. And, uh, and we had the privilege of publishing Patty now this for uh, two times. And again, how do you find out about a writer like that? In this case, it was another writer that we really um, value, and it was his connection, and Jay Malcolm Garcia's connection with Patty. He encouraged her to send us um, a play that she'd written some years ago, um, and, uh, and then she sent us this poem as well. The summer edition of the Massachusetts Review is now available, just published, through the Massachusetts Review's website or at your local independent bookstore. We really appreciate you, Jim Hicks, coming on our show and speaking with us. Jim Hicks is the executive editor of the Massachusetts Review. Congratulations on this brilliant edition. Thank you, Bill, and, and thanks for the invite. It's always great to talk with you and Buzz. We'll be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A crowd gathered at the Bang Community Center last night in Amherst to learn about municipal priorities and develop a five-year strategic plan in regard to affordable housing. Data from HUD shows households are paying 30% or more of their income for housing, with some paying 50% or more. Amherst is looking to build an inclusionary zoning and town housing policy change. This would ensure affordable single-family homes, duplexes, renting, owning, or Section 8 housing, and also provide more housing to UMass Amherst and Amherst College students. A continuation of the discussion will take place on July 19th. 
Three new student officers will be hired to join Northampton Police Department in the coming weeks. This is the start of an initiative that Chief Jody Casper believes will help recruit new talent and ultimately reduce overtime. In order for a civilian to become a police officer in Massachusetts, they must first interview with the department, followed by a background check and physical assessment. Then they must undergo academy training, during which they are considered student officers. The city budgets for 60 full-time police officers, but currently only has 50. A rally will take place at Northampton City Hall this Saturday to mark one year since Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. The event is called Life Without Roe and was organized by high school students, including Amherst High Schooler Alice Jenkins. Even though a lot of the times we feel really safe and protected in Massachusetts, it's still important to stand up for others around the country who are not feeling the same because at the end of the day, a movement is only successful if it has voices from both ends of the country. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa will be among the speakers at Saturday's event. Nice day for the first day of summer, partly to mostly sunny today, a high of 74 to 78. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 48 to 54. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance for some scattered showers, a high of 76 to 80. Showers likely on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El hijo del presidente Joe Biden, Hunter, se declarará culpable de delitos fiscales federales, pero evitará un enjuiciamiento completo por un cargo separado de armas en un acuerdo con el Departamento de Justicia que probablemente le ahorre tiempo tras las rejas. Hunter Biden, de 53 años, se declarará culpable de delitos fiscales menores como parte de un acuerdo hecho público el martes. El acuerdo también evitará el enjuiciamiento por un delito grave de posesión ilegal de un arma de fuego como usuario de drogas, siempre que cumpla con las condiciones acordadas en el tribunal. El acuerdo pone fin a una larga investigación del Departamento de Justicia sobre el segundo hijo del presidente Biden, quien reconoció haber luchado contra la adicción tras la muerte en 2015 de su hermano Beau Biden. También evita un juicio que habría generado días o semanas de titulares que distrajeran a una Casa Blanca que ha buscado enérgicamente mantener su distancia del Departamento de Justicia. Si bien el acuerdo requiere que Hunter Biden admita su culpabilidad, el el acuerdo se enfoca estrictamente en violaciones de impuestos y armas en lugar de algo más amplio o vinculado al presidente demócrata. En otras informaciones, la jefa saliente del Centro para el Control y la Prevención de Enfermedades dijo el martes que sus razones para renunciar eran complicadas, impulsadas en parte por el deseo de tomarse un descanso del ritmo frenético del trabajo durante una pandemia. La doctora Rochelle Walensky sorprendió a muchos en los círculos de salud pública el mes pasado al anunciar su partida después de dos años y cinco meses, uno de los mandatos más cortos para un director del CDC en las últimas décadas. El último día de Walensky en el CDC es el 30 de junio. Ella no tiene un nuevo trabajo u otro rol en espera, dijo, y señaló que quería pasar un tiempo con su familia viviendo a un ritmo más lento. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Welcome to Cool Films with Larry Hott, who has with him and us today in the studio a very special guest because we're going to talk about some really important films. Larry, the microphone's yours. 
Thanks, Bill. Good morning. I have with me Jody Jenkins. Good morning, Jody. Good morning, Larry. How are you? Jody Jenkins lives in Northampton. He's a fellow filmmaker. And we've been talking about his older projects uh, and his newer projects. And I wanted him to come in because uh, the work he's doing is fascinating, political, very relevant. Um, Jody, could you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Northampton as a filmmaker? How did you, get, how did you get end up getting here? Uh, well, I actually came here for my kids. Uh, we used to live in France, and uh, our kids wanted to go to school in the States, and so, you know, to, to go to high school, and they wound up going to Putney School in Vermont, in southern Vermont, and so I came here, and I got a gig over at uh, Amherst Media. I was their director of field production there. So you've been involved in media for a long time. Yeah, I, uh, I went to the University of North Carolina uh, Journalism School, so I was doing journalism for years, and then I wound up getting into film kind of by accident uh, with a friend who wanted to make a movie together, and uh, that launched me into television and film. The film you uh, worked on called American Jihadist, uh, I watched it. This is a fascinating film. It came out 10 years ago. It is as relevant uh, now as, as it was then. Could you just give us a little idea what this film's about? Yeah, it's the story of a guy named Isa Abdullah Ali. Uh, he's an African-American from the inner city of Washington, D.C. And it's a look at why someone would fight for their religion. He was born, uh, he was born in D.C. He's American. He was raised as a Christian. His uncle was a preacher in Culpeper, uh, Virginia. And uh, when he was 15, uh, he had a conversion to Islam. And uh, it was kind of a dramatic moment because he was going to kill himself. He was fed up with life. He didn't really understand. Uh, he didn't understand his situation and why he had to struggle so hard. So he put a gun to his head, and he claims to have had a, a, a vision or an intervention. A voice spoke to him that said, uh, that you do this, you will spend the rest of your days in hell. So he threw away the gun, and three days later, he met a Muslim named uh, uh, Musa Abdul Rahim, uh, who eventually converted him to Islam because he was seeking. Uh, Isa, above all, was this person looking for meaning. And uh, let me st let me stop you there because I, I've seen the film, saw it recently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that struck me is that he's living in D.C. as a teenager, and the way he describes D.C. in the '60s is that it's a war zone. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the rest of the film, you see him in other war zones, mm -hmm. and it made me think what. For example, what happened in Chicago last weekend, two mass shootings, 70 people wounded, some killed. Uh, our cities are sometimes considered war zones, too. And I know that's a Republican trope, but people who are living in some of these places feel that way. And here's a man who becomes a warrior, becomes a fighter, in basically in order to show his strength, because he was, he was bullied as a kid in the D.C. public schools. And throughout this film, you see him reacting, saying, I don't want to be bullied again. I want to protect other people. Yeah, and I think he basically, once he broke through that wall of fear that he grew up with, uh, because he grew up in a difficult neighborhood, and he was bullied by gangs and beaten up, but there came a point, a kind of a crisis point, where he was, uh, he was threatened with rape in a bathroom, and he just exploded and from that moment on uh he basically said no more now and one of the things that's key about this is it's a film is called american jihadist he goes and fights for the muslim cause all over the world right. uh, after after at uh, age 15 he sneaks into the army and goes to vietnam mm -hmm. learns all of these skills and then i think the next place he goes is at lemadon 
Uh, he went to Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, because there was actually a fairly large contingent of uh, Americans, mainly mm-hmm. African Americans, is my understanding, uh, that were going in, streaming into Afghanistan in order to uh, fight against the Soviet invasion. And uh, but he was injured getting into the country. Uh, and so he came out sooner than he had hoped, but not long after, he met a Lebanese person uh, in, um, in Washington, D.C., and he wound up going to Lebanon during the Civil War there, and he was there for about six years. Uh, and um, that's really where his story as a, as a fighter for Islam or a soldier for God begins for him. Was there a conversion? I really was. I want to know. Was there a conversion not only to Islam, but as well a conversion to violence? Uh, I don't think there was a conversion to violence uh, in in the sense. Well, let, let me go back. He he converted to violence. There was this moment where I told you that he was he was in a bathroom and these gang right. the, these gang members Horrifying. to rape him, and he was he was horrified. He realized. He had resisted it. He was, a, he was a good kid. He was a good student. His mother forbade him to fight. And when this moment arrived, he realized it was either fight or, or never stand up for yourself again. And so, okay, so in that sense, yes, there was a conversion to violence. He just recognized that in order to survive, he was going to have to fight. So let me just stop you for a second. Um, we're talking with Jody Jenkins, who's a Northampton-based filmmaker, and he made a film uh, 10 years ago or more called American Jihadist, which is very relevant today. Uh, we're going to hear a clip from that film right now. Go ahead. Ultimate insider. He speaks perfect English. He's been in the military. He's got the uniforms. He's got the American passport. He is wanted in the United States for questioning the terrorist activities. I don't hate Jews, I don't hate Christians, I don't hate Muslims, I don't hate any person. I just hate the sick, the mad, the ill that comes out of us all, even myself. So that's what I'm at war with, even myself. Vengeance, listen, is too heavy a load for any one of us to carry. I want to ask you what you got out of this film. You worked on it for a long time. What is your takeaway, and why is it still relevant, this film about an African-American man from Washington, D.C., who spent a life, he says in the film at one point, he, he stopped counting after he killed 173 or 177 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it relevant now, 13 years later, after you produced this film? Well, at the time, uh, I had been—I was living in Europe, uh, and uh, the war in Bosnia was going on, and I traveled there, and there were—I I actually wound up spending the night in the same bed as a guy who was traveling to Bosnia from Tunisia to fight for the Bosnian Muslim-led government, and I was intrigued by why these people were coming because ultimately, for me, I came to the realization that it wasn't the story necessarily that we were hearing in America. A lot of these people felt like others had been hung out to dry uh, because of their religion. And I personally believe that that was somewhat true, particularly in Bosnia, because Europeans were afraid of the Muslims. Uh, They were afraid of this insurgency rising up. And uh, I mean, Europe has been occupied in the past. I mean, Spain was occupied by the Moors and the Ottomans uh, invaded much of Europe. So, you know, it's this deep held fear. But for me, in America, I felt like we were, we were somewhat misinformed about what the motivations were. And I didn't want to 
uh, when I began to write about this, I didn't want to bring, uh, you know, an agenda to it. I just wanted, I thought that Americans needed to hear what someone who is doing this thinks about it. And I particularly felt it was important that it was an American because I knew those Americans were out there. Uh, because I felt like for us as a people, we find it difficult when we hear foreign accents and things like that. And so we found Isa. And his story was incredibly compelling for me. I came away really admiring his, uh, you know, his stance because I do think, despite all of the mm. questions around what he's done, I think he felt, and I believe in 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 most cases, he was doing it for what I perceive to be uh, moral reasons. So one man's uh, terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It, it yeah. is, and you know, and and morals, uh, you know, depending upon the perspective, mm -hmm. can be bantied about. But for me, I I admired him, uh, and and we didn't take a stance in this, but a lot of people felt that just by giving him air, mm -hmm. we were taking a stand. And if you watch it, we never, there's never a comment. Where does, it's only the people where does somebody watch it? How do the people see this film, American Jihadist? Well, it's, uh, it's, now, uh, it's now on Breaking Glass Film. It used to be on Netflix and Hulu, but I don't, I don't think it's accessible there anymore. But Breaking Glass Film has uh, uh, distributes it, uh, and you can find it there. Although I will mm -hmm. say that I preferred the festival version, which is longer and uh, a little more nuanced. Uh, it's about 77 minutes or so. Uh, yeah. yeah, 67. Yeah. And uh, there's another producer involved, Mark Claywell. Mark Claywell was the director, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, we, it took us a, quite a while. It took us probably eight years, nine years to finish this from start to finish uh, because raising money and things like that. But also we traveled to Lebanon. Uh, we were in Bosnia. We went to England and then several locations all over the state. So. One of the things that comes out in this film is the way uh, the American government sees this man. Yeah, it's interesting because he's never been charged with a crime and he comes in and out of the country quite regularly. Uh, and actually right now, if I'm not mistaken, he's living in D.C., which is his home. Uh, he's never been charged with a crime. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, he has a perfect right to come and go. He's been stopped plenty of times and he's been questioned. And uh, he's, even, uh, he's even reported to have, uh, 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 they've attempted to recruit him. Uh, so, which is normal. You know. Attempted to recruit him to work for the U.S. government? Yeah, because, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, uh, uh, as uh, I've been told, you know, you don't have to be squeaky clean to work for the U.S. government. You just have to have access. No surprise access. there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we've been, talking, we've been talking with Jody Jenkins, who is uh, one of the producers of American Jihadist, an excellent film. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk about what you're working on now. Okay, dope. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. 
River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate, you don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Gray Fox is the largest bluegrass festival in the Northeast. It's a who's who of bluegrass. Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, Del McCurry, Sierra Hall, over 40 acts, July 12th to 16th. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our cool films with Emmy Award-winning Florence-based filmmaker Larry Hott, who has with him and us in the studio another filmmaker whose work we want you to know about, Jody Jenkins. Larry. Yeah, Jody Jenkins is working on a new film called Democracy in Chains, and before we ask you about it, we're going to play a clip from the sample for Democracy in Chains. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. What these people really want is something so frightening that they do not ask for it by name. Dip down and take a drink and fill your water tank. Dip down and take a drink and fill your water tank. What is happening here today is a farce of democracy. It's libertarian right that is funded today by some of the wealthiest people in the world are quite willing to harness the right-wing populace in order to get voters to the polls for an agenda that will be devastating to those self-same voters. Will Senate Republicans reject the Koch brothers' radical plan to privatize Social Security and Medicare as we know it, minimum wage laws and workplace safety standards to roll back environmental safeguards to decimate Americans' public education system? That's what they want. Over the years, we've lost sight of the goal in education. But now they're more sophisticated and more careful about the way they talk about it. It's time for a revolution in education. Essentially, they're carrying out a kind of slow motion coup. Winning majorities. Okay, a slow motion coup is the last line in that. Tell us what your plans are. What is Democracy in Chains? Who wrote the book it's based on? And what do you want to say? What's your agenda for this film? So uh, the, book, uh, uh, the book is Democracy in Chains by uh, a Duke professor named Nancy McLean. She's a professor in history and public policy at Duke. And essentially, the book lays out uh, the program that the right wing has uh, been working from for the last 70 years. And it essentially came out of the, uh, the, the fight against integration in the 1950s in Virginia. Uh, and they use essentially a state's rights argument. Uh, it's the same argument that was used in the lead up to the Civil War, only with a twist. And that twist is they use it in terms of business. When, in order to fight integration uh, in Virginia, they wanted to privatize the school system and then say in a free market that uh, the government couldn't compel people to choose one place over another. And uh, that argument failed in the 1950s, but ultimately it's been transferred to the economy at large. Uh, and thus the push for states' rights across the country 
for those states that want to pull power back away from the federal government uh, and have more local control. Uh, it was a response to uh, communism. It was also a response to the New Deal of FDR. And what we have now is a pretty successful attempt to undermine the legitimacy of federal government. If we look at the polls now, Pew, uh, Pew shows that today, right now, there's 20% confidence in the federal government as opposed to in 1963 or four where there was 70-something percent confidence in the government and faith in the government. This is an incredibly important film, uh, and I see it uh, as a way of saying there is a deep state, but it's on the other side. There's a widespread right-wing conspiracy, and this book gets into the details, and you're going to make a film out of it. Um, it's going to be a very difficult film, I think, to make because you need a narrative thread. Um, but I congratulate you on attempting this, and we're going to have you back on the show and see what your progress with this has been. We've been talking with Jody Jenkins, Northampton-based filmmaker. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Bill. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Let there be light as the hawk cripples the dark. Find local news and local talk for the valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov slash WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are joined by Michael Clare, who is the Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and of course a prolific author on energy and world security issues. Michael Clare, we appreciate your being with us again today. We appreciate all the time you've given us since, well, before Russia invaded Ukraine. I would appreciate it if you could give us an update and your perspective on this long advanced notice, that terrible phrasing, sorry, of Ukraine's counteroffensive. Uh, how is it going? Is it going according to plan? And what do you see the outcome being? Oh, that's a big question, Bill. And it's hard to tell. My sense is that the Ukrainians are still in the early phase of the counteroffensive. The, this was originally a spring counteroffensive. Now it looks like it's going to last all summer uh, because they they say that what we're witnessing now is just the opening phases. 
they appear to be, the Ukrainians appear to be probing Russian defenses along the entire 600 mile long front in eastern Ukraine. Now, the Russians have had many months to dig in and to build fortifications, heavy fortifications against Ukrainian tanks and armored vehicles. And they seem to uh, have built very, very deep and effective defensive fortifications. So the Ukrainians are testing all of those and, and finding it rough going. Uh, in many areas. They've made limited gains uh, in Zaporizhia province, uh, but at high cost. But I don't sense that they've committed the bulk of their newly trained mobile forces equipped with Western weapons. They don't seem to have committed those new brigades yet into battle. So my guess is they're still probing the Russian defenses for weak points. And if they do, that's when they would commit those new mechanized brigades. So it doesn't look to me like we've really seen the full thrust of the Ukrainian counteroffensive yet. But it should be said that Russian defenses are, uh, are proving to be relatively robust and in, uh, in comparison to their weak efforts at their own offensive, which failed. It's harder to engage in an offensive or a counteroffensive when you're attacking uh, fortified positions that are heavily armed. I would appreciate a greater understanding of why the Ukraine wants to uh, attack fortified positions uh, you know, when the, 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 the reference has been in the press recently to a kind of Russian version of the Maginot Line, which was the defensive line that France built along its border with Germany in the 1930s, and the theory that uh, uh, that would prevent Germany from attacking France. And what Germany did was go around the Maginot Line over, over, over and around it. Um, so why does this work in Ukraine for Russia? Uh, so... I think we have to look down the road to the point where Russia and Ukraine are going to eventually have to sit down and work out, uh, you know, some kind of settlement. And there's a lot of pressure on them to to uh, to, to establish a ceasefire and some kind of peace negotiations and some kind of settlement. Uh, there, there are a lot of powers forces pushing in that direction down the road. We, you already had a delegation last week of nations from Africa, led by the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, who uh, came with a plea to both Zelensky of Ukraine and, and Vladimir Putin in Russia, met with both of them uh, with a plea to stop the fighting because uh, it was cutting off grain supplies to much of the world and particularly hurting the people of Africa. Then you have China uh, with its uh, uh, peace plan. And, and in Europe, the Europeans say they strongly support the Ukrainians, but it's clear that uh, they're not gonna have the ability to keep piling on weapons uh, month after month after month. And in the United States, 
the Republicans have si signaled that the uh, you know the open pocketbook for aid to Ukraine is is not endless, and they may uh, close that pocketbook in the months ahead. So uh, the the pressure to reach some kind of conclusion is building, and so the Ukrainians uh, want to have at that point as much of their stolen territory uh, returned to their side when 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 that point arises and so i think they're willing to take heavy risks to recapture re or or liberate as much of their territory as possible before there is a ceasefire because wherever that ceasefire is that's where the new the new boundary between russia and ukraine is going to be probably for a long time to come i hope that was clear that's very clear michael clear uh this is buzz and what i want to ask you about is this whole notion of a counteroffensive. my understanding i i read about it in the spring a counteroffensive is really a defensive tactical defensive initiative that is you're being attacked. A counteroffensive means that you ferociously, uh, not just uh, defend yourself, but you also uh, ferociously attack the enemy. And it, by definition, has to be prolonged. If it's just an initial response, it's not a counteroffensive. So that they are the you, the uh, Ukrainians are planning for this counteroffensive to last some period of time. And I wonder how that interfaces with the hope of peace talks? Well, uh, well, that's a good question. And uh, I, I think the Ukrainians think that, you know, they have a number of months in which to score major gains. And in particular, their principal objective appears to be, but this is all speculation, to sever the land bridge between the Donbas region, which has been occupied by pro-Russian forces since 2014, and Crimea, uh, which has also been occupied by the Russians since 2014. But in 2022, when the Russians began their invasion, they seized the land uh, be between those two areas and occupied a fair amount of of Zaporizhia province and Kherson province that lies between those two Russian controlled areas. And the Ukrainians want to, it appears to uh, sever that land bridge, that so-called land bridge between the Donbas and Crimea to isolate Crimea so that uh, the, the Russians will be in a, in a weaker position in future negotiations about the, the the status of those two areas michael, so that that's that seems to be the goal michael claire do you think that uh the ukrainians are going to attempt to take back crimea i don't think they have the capacity to take back crimea i think they would dearly love to do that I, I don't think they have the military capacity to to do that. I, I, I think their goal is to isolate Crimea and make it increasingly difficult for R Russia to, to support that so that there could be in the future international 
negotiations, a plebiscite, some kind of uh, reconsideration of its status, but I, I don't think they can achieve that by military means. I could be wrong. Uh, we, it's possible that the Ukrainians are planning a major attack on, 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 on Crimea, but, but I'm, I'm doubtful about that. When you talk about the pressure, Michael Clare, the pressure on Ukraine to come to a settlement sometime soon, do you think it is an asymmetrical uh, uh, situation in that the pressure is on Ukraine and really not so much on Russia at this point to come to a settlement? Uh, no, I think it's somewhat, uh, well, that's hard to say. I think Ukraine has been given a period, I think it's been given this summer and fall, it's been equipped with billions and billions of dollars of American and European equipment to conduct this uh, counteroffensive. So uh, it, it, the, the West has said you have a green flag for now, for twenty for the rest of 2023. So what? What? But beyond that, I think the pressure will grow. On the Russian side. I think they've also been given a green light by their major sponsor, China, to hold out and, and see how, how much they can hold out. But I don't think that's, that's going to last forever either. So uh, I think both sides, Russia and, and Ukraine, are, are, have a free hand for the rest of 2023. But I don't think it lasts beyond that. I think China's patience is running out. And I, I think that by the end of this year, uh, China is going to say enough is enough. You've got to settle. I want to know. I, I know I've posed this to you in various ways over the past year, more than a year now. But what does that settlement look like? Russia is on the border. It could attack any time. Uh, I mean, to have a piece of paper reminds me of you know, Chamberlain coming back. Uh, from his meeting with Hitler saying, here, see, we have peace in our time. Yeah. Here's a piece of yeah. paper. No, no, yeah, the, the, the Ukrainians will not settle for that. Uh, a final settlement is going to have to look like something like this. So uh, listeners will can't see my hand, but I, I have my fingers up. So, you know, first of all, it, it's got to have international backing by by le the leading powers of the world, the U.S. and China, India, and, and, and other countries have to sign on that we're backing this 100%. Uh, it, it's got to include security guarantees for Ukraine. If, that, if this is not including membership in NATO, it has to have some kind of NATO-like understanding that if Russia invades again uh, down the line, that Ukraine will have immediate support from NATO and the West. So it has to have security guarantees for uh, for for Ukraine, and and it probably will have to include some carrots for Putin, like some elimination of the sanctions as long as he behaves. 
We are speaking with Michael Clare. He is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, and he is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies from Hampshire College. We're going to come back and continue this conversation. I want to hear about his recent presentation at Princeton with regard to artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons, as well as what he presented and learned at the Center for Science and Global Security and at the Arms Control Organization in Washington, D.C. Lots more to talk about. We'll be right back. Walk through the valleys and the rivers and the plains. Walk through the sun and walk through the rain. Here is a land full of power and glory. Beauty that words cannot recall. All her power shall rest on the strength. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Go electric during the 4th of July sales event at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. New 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. Get up to $15,000 off MSRP with tax credits and rebates. And we'll pay you an unheard of amount for your trade. Visit General Manager Nick Kane to save thousands. Now at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram on King Street in Northampton. Stock 2320202. $15,000 off with a lease. Includes 7500 tax credit, 4000 manufacturer rebate, and 3500 Leah discount. Offer ends 7523. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, Michael Clare, who is also the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine and a prolific author on these topics. I would like to know, Michael Clare, you've been traveling, you've been in Princeton, uh, Speaking about artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons, you've also been in D.C. at the Arms Control Organization. Let's hear about artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons, which has gotten less uh, coverage, I think, in the media than it would have otherwise, uh, but for, well, Trump's indictment and related issues. But this is really important. Nuclear weapons, artificial intelligence. Talk to us about that, if you would, please. Absolutely. Uh, So... This is a topic that I follow 
closely, I, I study what are called emerging technologies, which is artificial intelligence, robotics, and hypersonic weapons. And uh, as these uh, new technologies proliferate, the danger of, we, I believe, we believe that the uh, danger of nuclear war breaking out is increasing because the new technologies are increasing the pace, the tempo of war, and making it harder and harder for commanders to know, to understand what's going on. So they're going to trust, uh, they're going to turn things over to chat GPT to decide whether or not to use nuclear weapons. That's, that's the dreadful future that, that I worry about. And there, there are no controls on this. And by the way, I, when I was in Washington, I heard from Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who said that, uh, that that's one of the issues that he wants to take up with Russia, that the Biden administration wants to take up with Russia and China in, in what's called strategic stability talks. And in the current an environment, uh, they've not succeeded in having those talks with Russia. Now, now uh, we know that uh, Secretary of State Blinken was just in Beijing meeting with top Chinese officials. I think he's raised these issues there and maybe out of that conversation, there'll be some progress towards joint meetings on reducing the risk of nuclear war. Well, tell us more, if you would please, Michael Clare, about what the uh, recent communication between uh, Blinken and the Chinese mean, or what its importance might be in terms of trying to prevent a nuclear war. Because apparently, much to my surprise, we don't have military-to-military -military communications with the Chinese. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think these talks came about because... Uh, people perceive pe that is people outside of the United States and China, but talk about our allies in Europe and Asia perceive the situation around Taiwan as deteriorating very rapidly towards war, a spiral towards war. They see that uh, China on its side is increasing its military probes of Taiwan, and on the other side, the U.S. is building up its military support for Taiwan, which angers China, and so you have a spiral of, of provocations. There was a near clash uh, two weeks ago between uh, U.S. and Chinese destroyers in the Taiwan Strait. They almost collided, and these kind of incidents are increasing. So there's a growing fear that the, these tensions could trigger a war. And so uh, Biden has come under pressure uh, to try to tamp, tamp things down. And I think the importance of this meeting in Beijing uh, was at least to, to, to turn the temperature down on, uh, uh, on tensions and make it possible for the U.S. and China to at least talk to each other. Uh, I, I don't think he got very far, Blinken did, but, it, but he may have paved the way for more talks. For, for example, uh, the possibility of talks between 
uh, Xi Jinping, China's president, and President Biden later this summer in San Francisco. So at least he may have made it possible for more talks to occur. And I know Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin was just talking about, he used the word preposterous. He said it's preposterous that there isn't greater communication between these two nuclear powers, which I thought was yeah. a powerful statement. See, I think the Chinese feel that they have been snubbed and, and dissed uh, by the Biden administration because the Biden administration keeps coming to China and complaining about their human rights violations and their... Uh, their treatment of Taiwan and so on, it does nothing but blame, 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 blame. And the Chinese are saying, that's not the way you treat a superpower like us. Uh, and we're not gonna talk to you until you change your tone. That I think was the message that Blinken heard. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, uh, maybe the message got through, I don't know. Uh, they, China does have human rights violations, but when you're talking to a nuclear armed superpower, you don't you don't start with the blame game. You start uh, with uh, some kind of mutual respect. That that was the entirety of the message that Blinken heard. And we'll we'll have to see whether that leads to anything. Is this a new Cold War between the United States and China, which of course has the potential? as it did throughout the uh, Cold War period with the Soviet Union, to become a hot war. Do you see that, uh, that resonance, the replication of that period of history? It's both worse and better than the Cold War. I mean, it's different, and it's got some features that make it less dangerous and some features that make it a lot more dangerous. What makes it less dangerous is that the US and China are intricately tied together economically in a way that the US and the Soviet Union never were. Uh, if we severed all ties with China, the world economy would, would collapse, uh, as would our economies. So as would China's. We, we can't, as would China's, yeah. I, I mean, the whole world economy would go into disarray. That, that was not true of the original Cold War. On the other hand, uh, we didn't have ships in near collisions with Soviet ships for the most part, the way it occurs almost daily in Taiwan, off the coast of Taiwan and in the South China Sea. There's much more intera dangerous interaction between the US and China than there was uh, well, once the once the Berlin Wall was built, the the, uh, the the risk of a conflict there became much less. But we have daily risk of conflict with China, so it's both uh, cooler and hotter th than the original Cold War, if I could put it that way. Okay, in the couple minutes we have left, Michael Clare, I'd appreciate your perspective on uh, artificial intelligence and how it is going to affect. Uh, the United States' ability or potential to respond to threats across the globe and whether or not human beings, rational human beings, are going to be able to overrule artificial intelligence? So, Bill, we have to come back for this because it can't be summed up quickly, but uh, the top leadership in the artificial intelligence community 
are saying that this is an extremely dangerous technology that humans are losing control of. So we we should be uh, aware we should be aware and worried about it for any use in our society is potentially dangerous. But to use this to run our military is doubly dangerous because of the possibility that it could uh, unintentionally start a war or escalate a war unintentionally and that humans will not be able to control it. So we have to listen very carefully to what people are telling us about the risks of artificial intelligence and be very, very careful not to apply it to military systems and military control systems. Okay, one last question about this. In terms of a potential nuclear war, is it mm-hmm. still the president's decision? We see, you know, the that box. What do they call it that that, that travels along with the, the football? Pre- the football. The football. It, yes. Is it still up to the president to decide whether or not to launch a nuclear attack? And that's where that's where the decision making, the ultimate decision making, still lies. Yes, it's up to the president to decide. Uh, but bear in mind that the president sits on top of a vast machinery of electronic devices, uh, beginning with satellites that detect possible missile launches and uh, AI processors that determine is this a real launch or a fake launch or an error. And the amount of time that he or someday or she has to determine whether this is a real thing or not is diminishing from 30 minutes under existing technology to five minutes with hypersonic missiles. So uh, how much ability a human being will have in the era of artificial intelligence to make a, a, a sane, thoughtful decision is, is vanishing. So yes, he or she makes the decision, but under circumstances that leave less and less room, less and less capacity for thoughtful, uh, sane decision-making. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, Michael Clare. He's also the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. Michael Clare, thank you so much for being with us today, and we'll speak again soon. Great. Good talking with you both. Thank you, Michael. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
A crowd gathered at the Bend Community Center last night in Amherst to learn about municipal priorities and develop a five-year strategic plan in regard to affordable housing. Data from HUD shows households are paying 30% or more of their income for housing, with some paying 50% or more. Amherst is looking to build an inclusionary zoning and town housing policy change. This would ensure affordable single-family homes, duplexes, renting, owning, or Section 8 housing, and also provide more housing to UMass Amherst and Amherst College students. A continuation of the discussion will take place on July 19th. Three new student officers will be hired to join Northampton Police Department in the coming weeks. This is the start of an initiative that Chief Jody Casper believes will help recruit new talent and ultimately reduce overtime. In order for a civilian to become a police officer in Massachusetts, they must first interview with the department, followed by a background check and physical assessment. Then they must undergo academy training, during which they are considered student officers. The city budgets for 60 full-time police officers, but currently only has 50. A rally will take place at Northampton City Hall this Saturday to mark one year since Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. The event is called Life Without Roe and was organized by high school students, including Amherst High Schooler Alice Jenkins. Even though a lot of the times we feel really safe and protected in Massachusetts, it's still important to stand up for others around the country who are not feeling the same because at the end of the day, a movement is only successful if it has voices from both ends of the country. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa will be among the speakers at Saturday's event. Nice day for the first day of summer, partly to mostly sunny today, a high of 74 to 78. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 48 to 54. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance for some scattered showers, a high of 76 to 80. Shower likely on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You take a classic like Caesar salad and start to mess with it, that could get you into trouble. Things could go wrong. The Caesar salad at Paul and Elizabeth's is a radical departure from the classic Caesar. And fortunately, in this case, things have gone rather right. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, a Caesar salad unlike any other, with romaine or kale or both, with balsamic onion, roasted red peppers, capers, smoked salmon, and the crowning touch, toasty hot polenta croutons. Surfing is the only life, the only way for me now. Surf, surf with me. Ride the wave with MusicRewind.com and Classic Surf, a three-CD set of 60 smash hits from surf pioneers such as Link Ray, The Ventures, The Beach Boys, Dwayne Eddy, Chan and Dean, Johnny and the Hurricanes, and many more. Classic Surf today at MusicRewind.com or call 855-798-5556 to transport yourself to a sun-drenched beach. Just enter or mention promo code SURF55 to pay the incredibly low price of $19.98. Plus, receive a bonus of reduced shipping. That's MusicRewind.com or call 855-798-5556 now. Remember, promo code SURF55 for reduced shipping. This offer is available for a limited time to U.S. residents only and cannot be combined with any other offer. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are back. You know, uh, Bill, if you have anything, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're looking for something to do this weekend, if you want some, like, music on multiple stages or uh, camping or great local food or beer and wine or craft vendors or, 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 or this is the weekend of Green River Festival 2023, and we have Jim Olson himself right here to talk about it. Hi, Jim. Good morning. How you doing? Uh, we're doing great. So... Talk about Green River Festival 2023. Well, this is our 36th year. Wow. Which I, I can't even believe. Wow. That, that's shocking to me. I was just a child when I was a part of the committee that started this thing back in 1986. And uh, we are back again for the third year at the Franklin County Fairgrounds, which we're just loving. It is just such a wonderful site for a festival. Um, you know, it's, it's more spacious than uh, our space at the college. Uh, it, it allows us to do more stages with less sound bleed and, uh, and just has a lot of room for more craft vendors, more food vendors, more stuff for the kids. As much as you love the college. Uh, we, love do, we love doing the, the years and years at the college. Um, and, and in certain ways, like everyone, we have a little nostalgia for it. But, but uh, Fairgrounds are great. Fairgrounds are great. Yeah. And fairgrounds have history. And uh, for Franklin County, it's sort of the center of the universe there. <laughs> That's right. It is. So what, 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 uh, what's going to grace the fe festival this Well, we, year? Have, we have bands uh, coming not only from all over the U.S., but a number of international bands this year. We have uh, bands from Argentina, from Venezuela, from the Congo, the People, <laughs> People's Republic of the Congo, uh, from the U.K., you know, this is really an international music festival. Uh, we like to mix it up. It's a lot of different genres of music, and uh, it's, you know, a lot of different kind of performers from all over the place, and it's, it's a mix. We have four stages, so we're able to really mix and match and do different things. You have a rock band on this stage. You have a Latin band on that stage. You have some folk or bluegrass on the third stage. That's just how we roll. It's really... It's and when really you say we, fun. who actually curates... The, the band to decide who's going to be playing? Um, we, we have a, a small committee of people who work on it. I do, I do a, a large part of, of the booking of the bands myself. You, Mr. Signature Sounds, you know a lot about this kind of thing. Exactly. You know, so, so it, it's a, something I've done pretty much since the beginning of the festival, been able to curate the lineup. But, you know, I have all kinds of staff members who give me suggestions. and yeah. Tell us about the lineup. The lineup is going to be fantastic. Um, Really excited about it. On Friday night, we have some fantastic soul and funk music to headline the uh, main stage, St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Great sort of blue-eyed soul band. Um, this guy, Corey Wong, who uh, is part of the band called Wolfpack, which is like a cult jam band. And he brings an 11-piece band with a big horn section and drummers and percussions. And uh, they do this sort of Hard to describe it, really. Um, kind of funk meets Frank Zappa sort of thing. And it's <laughs> super entertaining and really fun. Also on Friday night, we've got a band called The Sacred Souls from San Diego, California, who are uh, just a classic soul band that will remind you of like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles or Curtis Mayfield, like beautiful uh, soul music. We've got a couple great Latin bands on Friday night. Uh, we always do a lot of world music on Friday night. 
And then uh, as we move to Saturday, um, our headliner is an up-and-coming band that got their start at uh, Berklee School of Music in Boston. They're called Sammy Ray and the Friends, and they have just a rabid cult following, which you'll see in, in action at the festival. Um, and they're just a great band. Reminds uh, a lot of folks of Lake Street Dive, who's a band that's always been a, a favorite of ours, that almost like protégés of. They'll be there on, on Saturday night. The Wood Brothers, a... Uh, Great, great trio that uh, does this sort of uh, Americana soul thing. And uh, every year after the festival, we send out a festival survey to the customers saying, who do you want to see at the festival next year? And last year, the Wood Brothers came in number one in the voting. So the Wood Brothers are here. Rubble Bucket, uh, a real festival favorite of ours, some indie rockers, the Felice Brothers, a great band from the UK called The Heavy Heavy on Saturday, and a wonderful... Um, Afropop band, the one from the Congo, Jupiter and Aquas, and many more. There's, you know, and it's such an eclectic mix. Uh, how, when you have four stages, how, first of all, are any of them going to be playing simultaneously on different stages? Pretty much not. Um, you that know, would be a hard thing. To well, we actually can do two stages at a, at a time, so two are going, and the other two are dark, and th that way we we don't have the sound bleed. So there there are bands playing at the same time, but. It, it's usually one of the bigger stages, and then we have two smaller stages. So one of the biggers and one of the smallers are going at the same time. But you'll never miss a headliner, put it that way. We never put on two headliners at the same time. So. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they're all headliners. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're all worth hearing. They definitely are. I haven't gotten to Sunday yet. Come on. Um, Sunday yet, we have one of the real rising stars of country music. Her name is Sierra Farrell. She played the festival a couple of years ago. She, in just two years, has risen to headliner status. She'll be there on Sunday. Uh, we have the legendary jam rock band Little Feet from mm. the 70s. They're still together. There's still four original members in the band. Wow. And along with some young guys who've brought a real great energy to it. Old Little Feet. Yeah, there you go. And uh, we have a great band from New Orleans, John Cleary and the Absolute Monster Gentleman. John is uh, sort of a New Orleans piano player a la Professor Longhair or James Booker or Alan Toussaint. He brings a fantastic band to the festival. Fantastic young bluegrass band from uh, California, A.J. Lee and Blue Summit on Sunday. So I could go on and on, obviously, but that's that's just hitting some of the highlights of uh, this weekend of music. I know that uh, Mary Witt has a new group called Dear Ella that's going to be appearing. Uh, Mary right. Witt of the O-Tones. I think Mary's on the phone. Hello, Mary. I am. Hello. Hello. We have Jim Olson here. We're talking about, uh, well, what you're going to be doing this weekend. So tell us a little bit about Dear Ella. Well, Dear Ella is a trio of women. Um, we've all been friends for many years. Uh, Annie Patterson wrote the Rise Up Singing songbook that many people sit around the campfire and sing with, and there's a newer version out as well. Um, I'm the band leader for the O-Tones. I sing and play bass, and Ann Percival has been in the band with me for 30 years, and she also has a contra dance band called Wild Asparagus. So the three of us came together last year. Well, basically, Ann Percival sings in the oak tones with me, and when she's not available, Annie Patterson is her sub. So they had never sung together before last year. We got hired for a festival, and I hired both of them since I was in charge of the dance band. And as soon as we started singing together, three-part harmony, we knew we had to form a band. And so uh, we came up with the name Dear Ella because we love Ella Fitzgerald and many other women singers. And so um, I sing and play bass, Annie Patterson sings and plays banjo, and 
snare drum and guitar, and Anne Percival plays guitar and snare drum and ukulele. So they trade off, and I get to always play the bass. And this this weekend is the Green River Festival for 2023. It's going to be Friday, uh, Saturday, and Sunday. When will Dear Ella be performing? We're so excited to be on the Greenhouse stage on Sunday. Uh, We're doing a gospel sing in the morning from 10 to 11, and then uh, a short set in the afternoon from 1.30 or 1.40 till just after 2 o'clock. So that's a... Yeah, that sweet little stage off to the side near Dean's Beans. Uh, I went there last year for some surprise appearances by Lake Street Dive and some other bands. So it's a cool little area of Green River Festival, and we're so excited and honored to be part of it this year. And we're so excited that you're going to be Mary Witt. I always uh, love to hear you perform, and Dear Ella sounds really wonderful. So Jim Olsen, that's a local group. Yes. That you like to promote local groups as well. Yeah, about a third, a quarter to a third of the lineup is local groups. That's great. And uh, we try to give groups who haven't been, you know, through the festival before a chance. To, you know, we, we, we have such a great local bounty of, of local musicians here that we, we try each year to bring in new ones. So, so we're not just presenting the same. We're so lucky, groups. especially since you have such an eclectic mix of genres uh, at the Green River Festival. If people want to get tickets, how can they... How can they do that? Greenriverfestival.com. You get tickets, or you can just come to the gate uh, on, a, on either day. There's actually no bump in, you know, a lot of places. You, you wait to the day of. You have to pay more. We don't do that. It's, it's, it's the same. Yeah, and you can buy tickets for either Friday night or Saturday or Sunday or the whole weekend or two days. I mean, you've made it really convenient and, and, yeah. and the access to the to Green River Festival. I, can I ask a question that I fear asking? Sure. Thank you. Just in case the weather gods are not with you this year, what's the story about Green River Festival continuing and all the acts performing? We're going to do our best to get every single act up on stage. Um, We've looked at the weather. It does look unsettled, to say the least. Um, But we we have a great site at uh, the Franklin County Fairgrounds that has enough building space that we could literally put the entire crowd in indoors in case we get a bad thunderstorm or something like that. Of course, you never want to cancel bands, but, you know, safety first is always the most important thing, and we will do our best to, to get as much of the lineup on stage as possible. It's going to be warm, might be a little damp, but you're not going to get hurt or anything. Uh, anyone who, who's been to Green River Festival over the years knows that, that we're, we have a hearty crowd. We're, we're going to be doing it one way or another. Unless it, you know, unless there's some sort of lightning component that makes it dangerous, uh, mm-hmm. the show will go on. Move over Woodstock. We're going to come back. We're talking to Jim Olson about this weekend's GreenRiverFestival.com to get tickets, or you can get tickets at the gate. We're going to be right back and talk more about what's going to happen at the festival right after this. So- is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. In 1967, Judy Collins gave us a remarkable album, Wildflowers. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. On Saturday night, July 1st, 
Judy Collins takes the stage at Northampton's Academy of Music with the Rasa String Quartet to perform the Wildflowers album. Place around the collars of the blouses of the lady. Judy Collins at the Academy with the Rasa String Quartet, the chamber folk essence of the songs of Wildflowers breathe in new ways. Light gets into the corners and the melodies drink like a beautifully aged wine. Judy Collins performing Wildflowers and other songs from her 60-year career. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. Judy Collins with the Rasa String Quartet, Saturday, July 1st, 8 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Despite his youthful appearance, Jim Olson is the longtime festival director of the precious resource in the Upper Valley Green River Festival, which is coming up uh, this weekend. It's going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We've been talking about the music, the so-called lineup, Jim Olson, but what else is going to be happening at the festival? Well, as always, we have a lot going on. Um, we're super proud of our food game at Green River Festival. We have over 25 different food vendors with just about every ethnic specialty you could want. And, uh, you know, food for any diet, vegan, vegetarian, and just it, just really an incredible food and beer and wine game that uh, make the festival really fun. We have a juried craft selector, all local crafters, but uh, juried to get in, and uh, we have about 40 craft vendors to check out. We have tons of activities for the kids. A, a company called the Art Garden that's based um, in Shelburne Falls sets up a huge art tent for the kids and another huge games tent for the kids. Um, you know, and there, there's just a lot to do. There's, there's a lot to look at. There's a lot to do. And there's going to be camping. How many campers do you anticipate? We, we have about six, between six and 700 campers. That's uh, a lot of camping. Um, about 40. Six or 700 tents or six or seven, six to 700 people? Six or 700 people. That's a, a lot of people. It's a lot of people. We have, we have about 40-something uh, RVs, and we have <laughs> about 180 tents. And people you were telling us during the break from all over the country? All over the U.S. Green River, um, because we've been doing it so long, we've been doing it well for so long, this uh, festival draws people from all over the place. Last year, we sold tickets to 44 states, to, uh, to customers in 44 states. I haven't really taken a full look at that this year. 
But we have a lot of people, uh, you know, from all over the Northeast as well. A lot of New Yorkers, a lot of Boston area folks. Um, you know, it, it's really gratifying to that people want to travel to this and 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 be part of the the culture. It is it is June Festival Director Jim Olson, but I I saw in one of your promotional brochures Mardi Gras parade. Is we, that we right? Always do a Mardi Gras parade. That's that's one of the big draws. Yeah. In June, is that, is, Nan Parati have anything to do with that? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and when it, when is the parade? The parade is Saturday at five p.m. <coughs> We have uh, a New Orleans brass band that leads it. We have uh, a bunch of huge puppets. We usually have some costume people, and uh, the kids all make uh, things to wear or to little uh, shakers and stuff to have in the parade. So uh, we, we end up having several hundred people parading around the fairgrounds. It's really fun. It is really fun. And I do want to mention kids, 10 and under, are free. So you don't need a ticket for your kids. You can just bring them along. Jim Olson, I'd like to know, in terms of curating the bands, the, the performers, uh, you m- mentioned a extraordinary array of different kinds of music that will be available beginning Friday, running through Sunday evening. Do you uh, work to achieve that kind of eclectic uh, balance? So there's folk and there's jazz and there's hard rock and there's all sorts of stuff. Do you, do you look at it that way? or I definitely look at it that way. And, and you know, one of the inspirations for Green River Fest, it's, it's a much different scale, but I've been going to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival since the 1980s. And it was hugely inspiring to me that they had this melting pot of all these different styles of music. Um, you know, they have a gospel tent, a a, a traditional jazz tent, a modern jazz tent, a blues tent, and, and they bring together all this different music. And that's really been the inspiration uh, between behind Green River. Obviously, we can't do it on the scale that Jazz Fest does it, but uh, in our own way, we, we sort of uh, try to program an eclectic mix of music. Can you give us some estimate about how many people attended the Green River Festival? I'm not asking you for a predi- prediction for this year, but in years past? It's, it's generally between five and 6,000 people a day. Five to six thousand a day. Yeah, five or six thousand lucky people every <laughs> day. Um, and I, just one more question about Bill. Let's follow up on Bill's question, which is, how do you have the expertise in so many different genres? I mean, keeping up with just the, my favorite jazz, jazz genre is hard enough to find out what's happening today, as opposed to the old classics. How do you keep up with indie, for example? Buzz, it's my job. It really is. It's my job, and it's it's I, I'm. A huge music fan. If you come to my house, we if we're awake, we have music on. We listen to music all the time. Um, I go see tons of live music. I go to a lot of other festivals during the summer. I'll, during the summer, I'll go to five or six other festivals other than ours and see bands and and just uh, see what works for other other festivals. So, are a fair number of the bands that will play have they appeared at Signature Sounds? Yeah, we have some signature sounds bands. Elin Jewell, our old favorite, is back this year. She's fabulous. She is an amazing artist. I love her music. Not only will she be performing, she's going to be performing twice on Saturday, once set with her band, but she also has a project called Butcher Holler, where she does all songs by Loretta Lynn, the late Loretta Lynn. Really? And she's going to do a set of that um, a little later in the evening on Saturday. Oh, that's just, I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. Can't wait for all of this. You know, we're so lucky to live where we live. There's so many special things that happen here. This is really sort of a, a, our characters wrapped up in, in Green River Festival. Um, and this year's version, it's going to be on Friday, June 23rd, Saturday, 
and Sunday. Tickets are available at GreenRiverFestival.com, or you can just go and get them at the gate. Thank you so much for joining us and everything you do, Jim Olson. Thank you so much for having us, guys. It's our pleasure. And the rest of you, thank you for joining us today. Remember to walk the walk. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240-WHMP. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab Northampton at WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's